Chapter 8b of The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter 8b Kindness toward unfortunate clients, Refusal to defend guilty men, Courtroom anecdotes, Anecdotes of Lincoln at the bar. Some striking opinions of Lincoln as a lawyer. Lincoln regarded himself not only as the legal adviser of unfortunate people, but as their friend and protector, and he would never press them for pay for his services. A client named Cogdell was unfortunate in business, and gave Lincoln a note in payment of legal fees. Soon afterwards he met with an accident by which he lost a hand. Meeting Lincoln some time after on the steps of the State House, the kind lawyer asked him how he was getting along. "'Badly enough,' replied Mr. Cogdell. "'I am both broken up in business and crippled.' Then he added, "'I have been thinking about that note of yours.' Lincoln, who had probably known all about Mr. Cogdell's troubles, and had prepared himself for the meeting, took out his pocket-book, and saying, with a laugh, "'Well, you needn't think any more about it,' handed him the note. Mr. Cogdell protesting, Lincoln said, "'Even if you had the money, I would not take it,' and hurried away. Mr. G. L. Austin thus describes an incident of Lincoln's career at the bar. Mr. Lincoln was once associated with Mr. Leonard Sweat in defending a man accused of murder. He listened to the testimony which witness after witness gave against his client, until his honest heart could stand it no longer. Then turning to his associate, he said, "'Sweat, the man is guilty. You defend him. I can't.' Sweat did defend him, and the man was acquitted. When proffered his share of the large fee, Lincoln most emphatically declined it, on the ground that all of it belonged to Mr. Sweat, whose ardor and eloquence saved a guilty man from justice. At a term of court in Logan County, a man named Hoblet had brought suit against a man named Farmer. The suit had been appealed from a justice of the peace, and Lincoln knew nothing of it until he was retained by Hoblet to try the case in the circuit court. G. A. Gridley, then of Bloomington, appeared for the defendant. Judge Treat, afterwards on the United States bench, was the presiding judge at the trial. Lincoln's client went upon the witness-stand and testified to the account he had against the defendant, gave the amount due after allowing all credits and set-offs and swore positively that it had not been paid. The attorney for the defendant simply produced a receipt in full, signed by Hoblet, prior to the beginning of the case. Hoblet had to admit the signing of the receipt, but told Lincoln he supposed the cuss had lost it. Lincoln at once arose and left the courtroom. The judge told the parties to proceed with the case. And Lincoln not appearing, Judge Treat directed a bailiff to go to the hotel and call him. The bailiff ran across the street to the hotel, and found Lincoln sitting in the office with his feet on the stove, apparently in a deep study, when he interrupted him with, "'Mr. Lincoln, the judge wants you.' "'Oh, does he?' replied Lincoln. "'Will you go back and tell the judge I cannot come? Tell him I have to wash my hands.' The bailiff returned with the message, and Lincoln's client suffered a non-suit. It was Lincoln's way of saying he wanted nothing more to do with such a case. Lincoln would never advise clients into unwise or unjust lawsuits. 
he would always sacrifice his own interests and refuse a retainer rather than be a party to a case which did not command the approval of his sense of justice he was once waited upon by a lady who held a real estate claim which she desired to have him prosecute putting into his hands with the necessary papers a check for two hundred and fifty dollars as a retaining fee lincoln said he would look the case over and asked her to call again the next day upon presenting herself he told her that he had gone through the papers very carefully and was obliged to tell her frankly that there was not a peg to hang her claim upon and he could not conscientiously advise her to bring an action the lady was satisfied and thanking him rose to go wait said lincoln fumbling in his vest pocket here is the check you left with me but mr lincoln returned the lady i think you have earned that no no he responded handing it back to her that would not be right i can't take pay for doing my duty to a would-be client who had carefully stated his case to which lincoln had listened with the closest attention he said yes there is no reasonable doubt that i can gain your case for you i can set a whole neighborhood at loggerheads i can distress a widowed mother and her six fatherless children and thereby get for you six hundred dollars which rightfully belongs it appears to me as much to the woman and her children as it does to you you must remember that some things that are legally right are not morally right i shall not take your case but will give you a little advice for which i will charge you nothing you seem to be a sprightly energetic man i would advise you to try your hand at making six hundred dollars some other way senator macdonald states that he saw a jury trial in illinois at which lincoln defended an old man charged with assault and battery no blood had been spilled but there was malice in the prosecution and the chief witness was eager to make the most of it on cross-examination lincoln gave him rope and drew him out asked him how long the fight lasted and how much ground it covered the witness thought the fight must have lasted half an hour and covered an acre of ground lincoln called his attention to the fact that nobody was hurt and then with an inimitable air asked him if he didn't think it was a mighty small crop for an acre of ground the jury rejected the prosecution's claim many of the stories told of lincoln at the bar are extremely ridiculous and represent him in anything but a dignified light but they are a part of the character of the man and should be given wherever there is reason to suppose they are genuine besides they are usually full of a humor that is irresistible such an incident is given by the hon lawrence weldon lincoln's old friend and legal associate in illinois i can see him now says judge weldon through the decaying memories of thirty years standing in the corner of the old court-room and as i approached him with a paper i did not understand he said wait till i fix this plug for my gallus and i will pitch into that like a dog at a root while speaking he was busily engaged in trying to connect his suspender with his trousers by making a plug perform the function of a button lincoln liked old-fashioned words and never failed to use them if they could be sustained as proper he was probably accustomed to say gallows and he never adopted the modern word suspender on a certain occasion lincoln appeared at the trial of a case in which his friend judge logan was his opponent it was a suit between two farmers who had had a disagreement over a horse trade on the day of the trial mr logan having bought a new shirt open in the back with a huge standing collar dressed himself in extreme haste and put on the shirt with the bosom at the back a linen coat concealing the blunder he dazed the jury with his knowledge of horse points and as the day was sultry took off his coat and summed up in his shirt-sleeves 
Lincoln, sitting behind him, took in the situation, and when his turn came he remarked to the jury, "'Gentlemen, Mr. Logan has been trying for over an hour to make you believe he knows more about a horse than these honest old farmers who are witnesses. He has quoted largely from his horse-doctor, and now, gentlemen, I submit to you—here he lifted Logan out of his chair and turned him with his back to the jury and the crowd, at the same time flapping up the enormous standing collar. What dependence can you place in his horse-knowledge when he has not sense enough to put on his shirt?" Roars of laughter greeted this exposition, and the verdict was given to Lincoln. The preceding incident leads to another, in which Lincoln himself figures as a horse-trader. The scene is a very humorous one, and, as usual, in an encounter of wit, Lincoln came out ahead. He and a certain judge once got to bantering each other about trading horses and it was agreed that the next morning at nine o'clock they should make a trade, the horses to be unseen up to that hour, and no backing out under a forfeit of twenty-five dollars. At the hour appointed the judge came up, leading the sorriest-looking specimen of a nag ever seen in those parts. In a few minutes Lincoln was seen approaching with a wooden saw-horse upon his shoulders. Great were the shouts and the laughter of the crowd, and these increased when Lincoln, surveying the judge's animal, set down his saw-horse, and exclaimed, "'Well, Judge, this is the first time I ever got the worst of it in a horse-trade.'" There has been much discussion as to Lincoln's rank and ability as a lawyer. Opinion among his contemporaries seems to have been somewhat divided. Mr. Herndon felt warranted in saying that he was at the same time a very great and a very insignificant lawyer. His mind was logical and direct. Generalities and platitudes had no charm for him. He had the ability to seize the strong points of a case and present them with clearness and compactness. His power of comparison was great. He rarely failed in a legal discussion to use this mode of reasoning. Yet he knew practically nothing of the rules of evidence, of pleading, of practice, as laid down in the textbooks, and seemed to care little about them. Sometimes he lost cases of the plainest justice, which the most inexperienced lawyer would have won. He looked upon two things as essential to his success in a case. One was time. He was slow in reasoning and slow in speech. The other was confidence that the cause he represented was just. If either of these were lacking, said Mr. Herndon, Lincoln was the weakest man at the bar. When it fell to him to address the jury he often relied absolutely on the inspiration of the moment, but he seldom failed to carry his point. Among the great number of opinions of Lincoln's rank as a lawyer, expressed by his professional brethren, a few may be properly given in closing this chapter, which is devoted chiefly to Mr. Lincoln's professional career. First we may quote the brief but emphatic words of the distinguished jurist, Judge Sidney Brees, Chief Justice of Illinois, who said, For my single self, I have for a quarter of a century regarded Mr. Lincoln as the finest lawyer I ever knew and of a professional bearing so high-toned and honourable, as justly, and without derogating from the claims of others, entitling him to be presented to the profession as a model well worthy of the closest imitation. Another distinguished Chief Justice, Honourable John Dean Caton, says, In 1840 or 1841 I met Mr. Lincoln, and was for the first time associated with him in a professional way. We attended the circuit court at Pontiac, Judge Treat presiding, where we were both engaged in the defense of a man by the name of Lavinia. That was the first and only time I was associated with him at the bar. 
he practised in a circuit that was beyond the one in which I practised, and consequently we were not brought together much in the practice of the law. He stood well at the bar from the beginning. I was a younger man, but an older lawyer. He was not admitted to the bar till after I was. I was not closely connected with him, indeed I did not meet him often, professionally, until I went to the bench in 1842. And he was then in full practice before the Supreme Court, and continued to practice there regularly, at every term, until he was elected President. Mr. Lincoln understood the relations of things, and hence his deductions were rarely wrong from any given state of facts. So he applied the principles of law to the transactions of men with great clearness and precision. He was a close reasoner. He reasoned by analogy, and enforced his views by apt illustration. His mode of speaking was generally of a plain and unimpassioned character, and yet he was the author of some of the most beautiful and eloquent passages in our language, which, if collected, would form a valuable contribution to American literature. The most punctilious honor ever marked his professional and private life. The Honorable Thomas Drummond, for many years judge of the United States District Court at Chicago, said, It is not necessary to claim for Mr. Lincoln attributes or qualities which he did not possess. He had enough to entitle him to the love and respect and esteem of all who knew him. He was not skilled in the learning of the schools, and his knowledge of the law was acquired almost entirely by his own unaided study and by the practice of his profession. Nature gave him great clearness and acuteness of intellect and a vast fund of common sense, and as a consequence of these he had much sagacity in judging of the motives and springs of human conduct. With a voice by no means pleasing, and indeed when excited in its shrill tones sometimes almost disagreeable, without any of the personal graces of the orator, without much in the outward man indicating superiority of intellect, without great quickness of perception, still his mind was so vigorous his comprehension so exact and clear, and his judgments so sure, that he easily mastered the intricacies of his profession, and became one of the ablest reasoners and most impressive speakers at our bar. With a probity of character known to all, with an intuitive insight into the human heart, with a clearness of statement which was itself an argument, with an uncommon power and facility of illustration, often, it is true, of a plain and homely kind, and with that sincerity and earnestness of manner to carry conviction, he was perhaps one of the most successful jury lawyers we have ever had in the State. He always tried a case fairly and honestly. He never intentionally misrepresented the testimony of a witness or the arguments of an opponent. He met both squarely, and if he could not explain the one or answer the other, substantially admitted it. He never misstated the law according to his own intelligent view of it. Such was the transparent candor and integrity of his nature, that he could not well or strongly argue a side or a cause that he thought wrong. Of course, he felt it his duty to say what could be said, and to leave the decision to others, but there could be seen in such cases the inward struggle in his mind. In trying a cause he might occasionally dwell too long, or give too much importance to an inconsiderable point. But this was the exception and generally he went straight to the citadel of a cause or a question, and struck home there, knowing that if that were won the outwork would necessarily fall. He could hardly be called very learned in his profession, and yet he rarely tried a cause without fully understanding the law applicable to it. I have no hesitation in saying he was one of the ablest lawyers I have ever known. If he was forcible before the jury, 
he was equally so with the court. He detected with unerring sagacity the marked points of his opponent's arguments, and pressed his own views with overwhelming force. His efforts were quite unequal, and it may have been that he would not on some occasions strike one as at all remarkable. But let him be thoroughly aroused, let him feel that he was right, and that some great principle was involved in his case, and he would come out with an earnestness of conviction, a power of argument, and a wealth of illustration that I have never seen surpassed. Simple in his habits, without pretensions of any kind, and distrustful of himself, he was willing to yield precedence and place to others, when he ought to have claimed them for himself. He rarely, if ever, sought office except at the urgent solicitations of his friends. In substantiation of this, I may be permitted to relate an incident which now occurs to me. Prior to his nomination for the presidency, and indeed when his name was first mentioned in connection with that high office, I broached the subject upon the occasion of meeting him here. His response was, I hope they will select some abler man than myself. Mr. C. S. Parks, a lawyer associated with Lincoln for some years, furnishes the following testimony concerning his more prominent qualities. I have often said that for a man who was for a quarter of a century both a lawyer and a politician, he was the most honest man I ever knew. He was not only morally honest, but intellectually so. He could not reason falsely. If he attempted it, he failed. In politics he would never try to mislead. At the bar, when he thought he was wrong, he was the weakest lawyer I ever saw. Honorable David Davis, afterwards Associate Justice, U.S. Supreme Court, and U.S. Senator, presided over the Eighth Judicial Circuit of Illinois during the remaining years of Lincoln's practice at the bar. He was united to Lincoln in close bonds of friendship, and year after year traveled with him over the circuit, put up with him at the same hotels, and often occupied the same room with him. This simple life, says Judge Davis, Mr. Lincoln loved, preferring it to the practice of the law in the city. In all the elements that constitute the great lawyer, he had few equals. He seized the strong points of a cause, and presented them with clearness and great compactness. He read law books but little, except when the cause in hand made it necessary. Yet he was unusually self-reliant, depending on his own resources, and rarely consulting his brother lawyers either on the management of his case or the legal questions involved. He was the fairest and most accommodating of practitioners, granting all favors which he could do consistently with his duty to his client, and rarely availing himself of an unwary oversight of his adversary. He hated wrong and oppression everywhere, and many a man whose fraudulent conduct was undergoing review in a court of justice has withered under his terrific indignation and rebuke. Mr. Speed says, As a lawyer, after his first year he was acknowledged to be among the best in the state. His analytical powers were marvelous. He always resolved every question into its primary elements, and gave up every point on his own side that did not seem to be invulnerable. One would think, to hear him present his case in the court, he was giving his case away. He would concede point after point to his adversary, but he always reserved a point upon which he claimed a decision in his favor and his concessions magnified the strength of his claim. He rarely failed in gaining his cases in court. The special characteristics of Lincoln's practice at the bar are thus ably summed up. He did not make a specialty of criminal cases, but was engaged frequently in them. He could not be called a great lawyer, measured by the extent of his acquirement of legal knowledge, 
he was not an encyclopedia of cases, but in the clear perception of legal principles, with natural capacity to apply them, he had great ability. He was not a case-lawyer, but a lawyer who dealt in the deep philosophy of the law. He always knew the cases which might be quoted as absolute authority, but beyond that he contented himself in the application and discussion of general principles. In the trial of a case he moved cautiously. He never examined or cross-examined a witness to the detriment of his side. If the witness told the truth, he was safe from his attacks. But woe betide the unlucky and dishonest individual who suppressed the truth or colored it against Mr. Lincoln's side. His speeches to the jury were very effective specimens of forensic oratory. He talked the vocabulary of the people, and the jury understood every point he made and every thought he uttered. I never saw him when I thought he was trying to make an effort for the sake of mere display. But his imagination was simple and pure in the richest gems of true eloquence. He constructed short sentences of small words, and never wearied the minds of the jury by mazes of elaboration. End of chapter 8b Recording by Bill Borst